Hi everyone, it's Vesta from WISE. This is part two of our episode featuring Rebecca Winthrop and Jim Shelton, recorded in WISE at New York. In the first part of the episode, we discussed the challenges of inequality in education in a global as well as US context. We know that inequality plays a large part in the issues that we experience in our education systems. Let's see some other challenges that Jim predicts. I think there are probably, I break down uh, the big challenges in the four really big buckets. The first one is, um, one we all struggle with is, how hard it is to get the answer to the question, so what works um, that, that that failure of knowledge uh, and failure of access to that knowledge is one of the bigger barriers, and we don't talk about it often enough. Um, the, the fact that the things that we know about neuroscience and cognitive science and behavioral science, that those aren't built into our teacher training programs, uh, as well as the fact that we don't invest in the kind of R&D that we need, that's a big failure. The second one is, um, you know, for a long time, and we are struck by the inequity that exists in schools because what we do have in terms of resources and expertise doesn't get to the children who need it most. Whether you're talking about in the context of the United States, the disparities between suburban and urban schools, or you're talking about parts of the world where children just aren't in school at all. The third is, uh, even when you have that, oftentimes both the students and the educators don't adopt the things that um, we are all hoping that they'll use to be more effective. And so uh, building the kind of culture that looks for things that work and then deploys them efficaciously and consistently, like that is a big barrier. And then the, the, the last one is um, this notion of uh, the context, whether it be political or policy-wise, where we put barriers in the way or fail to remove barriers and create incentives that people make what should have what policy is, the easiest thing to do ought to be the right thing to do. And, and, and in fact, we often create a policy context where doing the right thing is incredibly hard. Yeah. So it's about finding what works in education, but also finding what works in our own learning. There's also the distribution of resources, uh, especially the equal distribution. Another challenge is user adoption and building a culture that looks for things that work and voices them consistently to their society. Then there's also creating a context where we don't have political or legal barriers that get in the way of doing the right thing. Now's the time to inject an idea slash notion from Rebecca. If you're not yet familiar with the idea of leapfrogging, then you're in for a treat. And then I was in a WISE conference several years back, and one of the speakers said, you know, what if we're all sitting here and we are at an encyclopedia conference, and it's the year before Wikipedia is invented. <laughs> and yeah. I really started thinking about that, and I started thinking, you know, what if, what if we didn't, what if Wikipedia has already been invented in the education sector and we don't recognize it, right? Mm -hmm. Or what, you know, what would that even look like? What would such a, a, a massive transition even look like in education? And so I really started thinking about, you know, this idea of rapid acceleration of progress. Um, okay. People call it bending the curve, and I liked this idea of leapfrogging. And my other colleagues at Brookings who work in things like financial inclusion, et cetera, you know, leapfrogging is a colloquial term that they use to really describe this rapid acceleration of change. So yeah. you know, switch to mobile banking, stop building physical bank branches, and if 
short couple of years, doubled financial inclusion in Kenya, for example. And you can do this, you know, the typical example is in Sub-Saharan Africa, moving from landlines to mobile phones, you know, rapid acceleration of access to information. So that's what I've started thinking about for leapfrogging. You know, how how do we not wait 100 years? Why should we wait 100 years? That's just not Mm -hmm. fair. And what would leapfrogging even look like? And I realized after, you know, doing the literature review that there is there was there were some folks um uh working on this topic but it was only a few people here or there um and they were you know i called them up immediately and we talked to them john morovic is one of them and quickly realized that it's not there isn't really a consensus or a big definition it's not that the concept of leapfrogging is not a thing in education. I, I didn't really learn that in my PhD program, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, there's other definitions in other sectors, but not in education. And really, I've been, you know, there's lots of analysis by a range of groups, you know, including UNESCO's global education monitoring yeah. team, but that had really showed, you know, young people who are born to families living in the lowest 20% um, socioeconomically at, versus young people born to families in the highest 20% socioeconomically, really, it's going to take a long, long time before they catch up to each other. And I looked both across countries. So, you know, the poor countries versus wealthy countries and this, this, this idea that, you know, it's going to take a hundred, you know, hundred years for an average performing student in a low-income country to catch up to an average student in a high-income country. And then you can also look within countries. I was looking at the difference and, and, and there's equally big, long differences. So let's move this idea forward now. What role does technology play in scenarios of leapfrogging? So I think the most important thing to remember about technology is that technology does one thing really well, which is scale things but it is indifferent about what it scales. It will scale bad practice as quickly as it scales good practice. And so it always has to be in service of what we actually know and believe in and hopefully know is gonna be beneficial for the students. I think there are a number of ways that technology has already demonstrated it can help us. Broad access, right? You look at something like a Khan Academy and how it has been able to provide people who never would have had access or MOOCs, incredible access. No questions about fidelity, quality, and all that stuff, but incredible access. The ability to customize and personalize, like technology has been known to be really fantastic. Um, We haven't experimented really well with what the potential is around things like accountability. Um, The the, the, um, example I give here in the U.S. is, you know, we have uh, many, many virtual schools. Um, they run basically under the same accountability system as traditional schools, yeah. but they can, they can grow at much more rapid rates. But there, there actually is no reason to use the same accountability system. You can see daily usage, you can see daily progress. But the most important thing I think about technology in its application in learning has the potential to allow us to learn faster about learning yeah. than we've ever done before. And that may ultimately turn out to be the most important role that technology can play for us. Yeah. Okay, so how do we effectively spread innovations? I know from my uh, work I've done on scaling with my colleague Jenny Perlman Robinson here at Brookings, and there's lots of other groups who are looking at this question of scaling. You know, we, we did look across sort of examples where 
learning, and we looked at learning across a, the breadth of skills, so not just academic learning, but where has learning success, you know, approaches that improve learning successfully scaled up, and, and what do they have in common? And one of the things that they had in common is particularly if you're looking at the scaling up process, sort of small to large, one of the things they had in common is innovations are usually get their start on the margins of an education system, and this holds holds with a lot of sort of innovation theory and sociology of how innovations spread. Things start on the margins. There, you know, there's not a big spotlight. There's room to iterate and experiment. You kind of work it out, see, you know, go for a little bit of a test run, and then a lot of good ideas don't spread and scale and sort of go more towards the center in part because they don't design with the idea of scaling from the start. So that's one yeah. pitfall, which is people um, either it's a, it's a gold-plated model and it's just basic things like cost per child is prohibitive from scaling yeah. up larger. Um, and the ones that were successful to scale, you know, made sure that, that it was financially feasible. A second pitfall on the design part is people often don't know when they're inside it, what is really the key element that makes this thing successful? And so sometimes people scale the wrong things <laughs> yeah. and leave the right things out. Um, and so this idea of flexible adaptation is a, we found is a huge stumbling block. Yeah. for successful scaling of innovations, which means, you know, on the one hand, you have one approach, which is, this is the model, it's on the margins, it's really effective, it's cool, let's say the price point is fine, you know, it can, you know, pragmatically can scale up, and what we're going to do, the scaling model is just cookie cutter, take it exactly like it is and go in and just replicate it in a bunch of communities. Now, that is very hard to do because it's costly. Mm -hmm. You need to have you know teams go in and you know basically do it for everyone. So that's one extreme doesn't work well. The other where you don't really adapt at all. The other extreme is well it worked well. We're just gonna kind of give out and let people know about it and people can take and do whatever the heck they want with it. And often that's too loose because people don't keep the essence of what made the you know innovation successful. So the the middle ground this idea of flexible adaptation where you know what the core elements are that are essential is the most important um, thing to figure out and very hard for people. I, I think that there are, we were able to fund some work that I, that I, I am extremely helpful about. Um, there was a interdisciplinary uh, group that got together to, I, I call it re-articulate the science of learning and development, yeah. to find the connections between the neuroscience and the behavioral science and the cognitive science. And uh, to, to lay out a framework that says, hey, there is an underpinning for how all humans develop. Um, and that if we actually tap into that science, we can make progress much more rapidly. It also did a really good job of explaining the role that context plays, whether it's the context of poverty, the context of trauma, or the context of bias in inhibiting our development as humans. And so you wind up with a framework that is universal in its application to all humans and also a framework that helps you understand inequality and its role in inhibiting human performance and, and potential. Yeah. And so I think that as a starting place is really important. But one of the things we recognize is we've not been thoughtful enough about the infrastructure that we require to do this work. Um, and what are some of the big, big bets, if you will, that we should make 
to try and make rapid progress um, in areas that we have. So we actually connect back to this point about contexts that affect inequality and tech as a tool for development. So what are some insights and perhaps uh, an example from Rebecca's experience? My big takeaway is yes, there are things happening on the ground that can help leapfrog. And it is possible. Now, I'll give you some examples. The, the one you talked about is the hybrid learning program that Pratam, large Indian education NGO, runs. Yeah. And they have for a long time been very focused on reading and literacy and numeracy and you know data transparency and a whole bunch of stuff. And they're they, in rural communities. And really, the founder of Pratam, Madhav Chavan, had took me out and he said, look, I, I just tried an experiment. I, I just wanted to see what would happen and with the idea of, is there a new model that we could tackle? So he went to, I think it was something large, like 400 or something like that, um, Indian rural villages where Pratam had already been working. So they'd already yeah. had interventions with teachers working on literacy and numeracy. So they'd had, they had a little cohort of students in school already who had some level of education where they were literate and they could read. Yeah. Basic literacy. And he went and he said, look, <coughs> we will give you a tablet. Um, and this was really for upper primary and middle school age kids. So that the villages had to have enough of those kids um, in the community. And it has already a ton of educational content in local language loaded on it because Pratam has for years been making um, you know, Pratam books and all sorts of uh, good reading materials um, and education materials, games, etc. And he said, the only thing I request, there's two, two rules. Students have to share a tablet, you know, four or five to one tablet. They can do whatever they want with it. Oh, oh no, it's 10 kids. That was it, 10 kids to one tablet. So they had to have two groups. They had to organize themselves. And, you know, so five would have it for one period of time a day and five would have it for another period of time a day. So they had to do a little self-organization. They organize themselves into their own groups and figure out who has which shift. And an adult has to charge the tablet each day. And they have little generators or batteries. These are pretty rural villages. They do have some power or they have backup generators. They don't have internet. Kids have not really seen a lot of technology. Flip phones, probably, but not much more than that. And they had a password on these tablets that they taught the kids because they just, you know, they said, oh, well, we don't. You know, we want them to access the educational content. We don't want them to do, you know, whatever else it is they're going to do, Lord knows. And within the first three months, half the kids in the villages had hacked the tap, bypassed, the, bypassed yeah. the passwords, and they were doing amazing things. These kids were, and I visited several of these groups, they had self-organized, they were super prompt on their shifts, super motivated, and they were learning and consuming stuff over and over and over, going back, practicing it. And then they were making plays. They were recording each other. They were doing videos. Personally, I love hearing about examples when kids find ways to hack things. Perhaps not in every case, but certainly in this one. It unleashed potential in creative and very proactive projects. And the students that Rebecca actually talked about here went on to improve their scores in English and Hindi. And notably, their sense of curiosity increased and they became more inquisitive about things around them. 
Now, without generalizing youth, including myself, too much, I think there's something special to say about the generation that is heavily influenced by our access to information in this digital era. Here's a special observation from Jim that I really appreciate. So I think that impetus to do something of purpose, to do something meaningful and to contribute to something bigger, we're seeing get stronger with every generation. And we have to figure out how to feed it and cultivate it and then give them the tools and resources to actually have the impact they see. Um, then, you know, uh, there are lots of things that we kind of criticize about, you know, this generation and how it uses technology to connect. But they keep demonstrating to us that they actually want to connect. Yeah. They want to connect with each other and they want to have community. And I think that that impulse and desire for purpose and community um, will lead to a society like you're describing. Right. We want to connect. That's beautiful and ties back into the Pratham example, where the kids wanted to connect to more content on the internet. So what was the kind of world Jim was talking about? Stavros? I sort of try to imagine a, a world that's you know, sort of a little bit modeled on those elements of, of the classical Greek experience that, that sort of valued civic engagement, you know, participation in governance, um, you know, over, uh, over simply enriching your, yourself. It's an idiot you may not know, know this, but the root uh, of the word idiot is, is from the Greek uh, word idiotis, which is someone who's concerned with their own sort of private business. And, 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 and you know, it's clearly an insult in those days. I did not know that. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of stayed with us. But, you know, that's, that's in my sort of more, you know, utopian moments that, you know, maybe we can sort of revive this idea of, you know, civic engagement and working for the common, common wheel um, as, as actually something that people want to pursue. I hope you enjoyed that bonus content. Now, back to our idea of leapfrogging. There's enough evidence out there about what we know about how, what it takes to transform what and how kids learn so they get a breadth of skills. With new, really innovative approaches that are happening on the ground, even be they small to medium scale led by NGOs, that it seems to me, yes, it is possible, but 60% of all the innovations in the catalog we studied were led by nonprofit organizations, another 25% by the private sector, only, and, and then a bunch of sort of communities were others, and really less than 15% were led by governments. That is where we need to get to, is to really help governments think through what do, would leapfrogging look like for them? What of the whole range of different possible options that are leapfroggy, and here I would want to work on sort of next step is sort of curate um, for decision makers, which are those out of the 3,000 we looked at, which are have the most leapfrog potential? So I yeah. wouldn't say, you know, scale up everything in there, because just because it's innovative doesn't mean it's good and doesn't mean it's going to get you breadth of skills. You know, which have leapfrog potential, which have good evidence behind it on that they're effective and what context would they work in? Um, th those are sort of big questions I have moving forward. Okay, so there's definitely room to improve when it comes to informing government entities about which efforts work and essentially leapfrog their education goals. So what is the difference between working in government versus for profit? I mean, I'll, I'll say that the, the most important difference in working in government, and I was proud, proud to serve 
even more proud to serve when I realized this. I remember uh, the, probably my third day on the job at, uh, at the department, and I was sitting in the secretary's office. We just finished the meeting, and I was looking out at the flags because they were still up. And we had just finished a meeting where we spent 20 minutes talking about Montana. <laughs> and I realized that I had not talked about Montana for more than five minutes of that in my entire career. Yeah. And that students, wherever <clears throat> they were, were completely in my care. Yeah. All of them. I didn't get to pick and choose. Yeah. I had to think about them all, all the time. And that essential role of government, that you are the last line, that every child is in your care, means that you operate in a very different way. Um, and that your care to make sure that you are being thoughtful about every constituency uh, needs to be extraordinary. When you are working in the private sector, you have the opportunity and you frankly the necessity to pick and choose. You don't have the resources of government. You don't have the reach of government. And so you have to look for those opportunities for leverage. Being able to focus in that way actually creates an opportunity for nimbleness and speed yeah. and um, and it's essential that we take advantage of that because the, the private sector you then can create the take the kinds of risks yeah. that allow government to then learn from that experience and help it have it benefit everyone. Great insight. So in fact by knowing why and how they work differently you, you can almost see the, the for-profit or private sector as a lab that gets to work in a targeted way and then share their findings about what works and what doesn't with the government sector. What's an example of a government doing something innovative in the ed education world? And I'll give you one example, which is a well-known example in our global education world, but less well-known sort of outside of that. That is the example I like to hold up of a government really doing innovative mm -hmm. stuff. catalog, And that is this example from the Amazonas state of Brazil, the Media Lab program, where the Secretary of Education was given, importantly, the space um, to be creative. And importantly, the federal government had set a bar, had set a standard. They said all kids have in, the, in our country have a right to go to primary and secondary school. And, you know, you states, because it's, it's, it's a decentralized system, have to figure out how to do that. And for a long time, the kids in Amazonas, which is very rural for most of the state and yeah. kind of small communities, often in the Amazon jungle, only had primary school access. And the, this creative secretary of education spent a long time talking to community members and getting them on board with this idea of a um, distance learning program where he basically broke the teaching profession into two types of teachers, all teachers, all part of the union, all paid. And he had the best sort of content teachers in the capital broadcasting by two-way video uplink to a thousand little classrooms. And then he had mentoring teachers who were in the classrooms helping do classroom management and navigate the technology and helping kids you know, work together and um, make sure it all goes well. And that has been hugely successful in that in a few short years, those kids went from having zero secondary education to having secondary education. And they've performed on average in sort of national assessments with the rest of the kids in the country. So to me, that's a great example of sort of government ingenuity and leveraging technology to really modify and redefine what's possible. 
And we echo the idea of splitting the teacher roles as mentioned earlier in part one. It seems here that it was also the decentralized government model that may have contributed to the media lab uh, being so successful. The different states were trusted to achieve the goal that was set out by the federal government of Brazil to give all kids access to primary and secondary school. I want to go back to the Pratham example that Rebecca had mentioned, because this notion of collaboration isn't just for the organizers or initiators of the education systems, but also the users, the students. Yeah, but what, what I like about that example, actually, it's, it's almost the, in the, the tablet is almost incidental. Exactly. Um, to, the means uh, to an end. It's, it's the means to an end, but it, it, the, the key element here is, is I think, the, uh, the fact that it's a group activity. Mm-hmm. And that's often something that sort of gets, gets lost when we talk about sort of technology and education. That, you know, there's always, it's like, you know, oh, one laptop per child or, or one tablet per child. Actually, I think what this example demonstrates is that that's probably counterproductive. And that, that you can do, in a sense, and achieve a lot more with, with a lot less if you have, as you say, you know, one, one, one tablet and it's, it's sort of a, a tool that's used by a group of kids to sort of come together, collaborate, co-create, learn from each other that, that, that I think is, is, is the essence of, of why this is such a sort of encouraging example. Our users, the students, need digital literacy to use and create and excel in what they want to do. So not just becoming consumers of information, but iterating and adapting and improving. So we're going to pivot here and dive into speculations of the future. There seems to be some extreme predictions about automation and artificial intelligence. Um, I worry about it, and I especially worry about it during the transition. Um, I think that we're not prepared for the kind of, uh, I'm not worried about the steady state, I'm worried about the transitions. How do you, you know, everyone is focused on uh, robots taking factory worker jobs. That's, yeah. that's not what I'm worried about first. Yeah. What I'm worried about is they're uh, radiologists. Um, <laughs> like, for the most part, um, the kind of observations we count on radiologists to make looks like AI is going to figure out much more. I think it's already happening with certain cancers. Yeah. certain cancers. Yeah. Um, and professions like accounting, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see a disruption of the middle class yeah. um, that people aren't anticipating. Yeah. And we don't have new roles for those people. I think that, um, that though, what will happen at the same time is we'll find ways to augment these and to do things that we didn't think were worth the investment. Yeah. And those will create new opportunities. Yeah. And I also think that there's going to be a cultural adjustment. Yeah. It, it, it occurred to me when I was traveling through Kenya that there are whole communities where 30 to 40 percent unemployment is not abnormal. And yet the, the fabric of community is very strong. Um, and um, if we can actually understand better how to provide food, shelter, and other things that people need to thrive at much lower rates, yeah. then you can actually give people a high quality life and sustain it with that level of employment. And I think we're gonna to have to start thinking differently about what that looks like. We can create a revolution in new jobs, but we'll also create a revolution in the ways in which people value how they spend their time and, yeah. and resources. It may be so that with the change in how we develop and live with new technologies, 
the shift in jobs will actually reflect the shift in what we value doing as a community. And on Jim's thoughtful note, I'm going to wrap up this episode with some final words from both Rebecca and Jim about what's next for them. I'm still a senior advisor with Tim Zuckerberg, and I'll continue that, but I'm too young to be an advisor for the rest of my career. Yeah. So I have not made a determination about what I'll do next. I, I love um, the opportunity to invest in others to do work that I think is transformative. I do continue to believe that there is an opportunity to organize work that is cross-sector, that can change uh, the arc of, of, President Obama loves to refer to Martin Luther King, who kept someone up and says, you know, the more, more arc of the universe is longer events towards justice. Yeah. And I'm completely reminded that it's not, it doesn't just bend, it's bent by people yeah. who actually intervene yeah. and find solutions that take us where we want to go. And I think that when we learn how to invest across sectors, we can actually accelerate that work. Yes. So if I can do anything, that's the work I'll do if I can do it at a proper scale. But I also love being in it, like serving students and yeah. uh, operating. So you want to stay in education, essentially, or at least have education and social mobility. I'd say education and social mobility more broadly yeah. um, are the areas of passion and where I think I can have the most impact. Thank you for having me on. And if people are interested in our work and on, on the book, Leapfrogging Inequality, Remaking Education to Help Young People Thrive, which is what we were talking about, they can absolutely get it wherever they get books, Amazon or other bookstores. But I also wanted to point out that Brookings Press has been very generous and made the electronic copy free because I really felt strongly no, that's, that all, that's these, great. all these 3,000 innovations that are in far, far flung corners of the globe. I wanted to make sure they had access to it. So, you know, please get it, share it, distribute it. We'd be very happy to get feedback on, on what people think because we are starting our second phase of research. And I'm very interested in looking at how communities understand innovation and particularly parents and parent demand for these types of innovation as a supporter for sustaining some of this scale up. And people can go to the Brookings website, which is brookings.edu, and put in Center for Universal Education. And they can also I'll post things on Twitter, which is at Rebecca Winthrop. And looking forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for listening to Wise Words. Don't forget to like and share this episode if you enjoyed it, and subscribe to our channel to catch our next episode. Thank you.